you'll take your Bibles and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. And I want to thank all of you scouts and scout families for being here today. This is extra special. Uh, we love it when you come and you wear your uniforms. A number of you come here every single week, and uh, we're delighted with that. But we, we love having uh, your pack in our church, and you parents, I just want to affirm, and you leaders, uh, what a valuable thing this is. Uh, uh, we support you in uh, building these young men into... Uh, uh, men of character and uh, teaching them real servanthood and community spirit. Uh, those are all wonderful, positive qualities, and uh, they'll receive great benefit from that. We're delighted you're here. Somebody sent me this uh, little story about uh, a fisherman. A boat had docked in a, a tiny Mexican village. An American tourist complimented the Mexican fisherman on the quality of his fish. He said, how long did it take you to catch those fish? The Mexican fisherman said, oh, not very long. But then uh, why didn't you stay out longer and catch more fish, the American asked. Well, the Mexican explained that, uh, well, this small catch was sufficient to meet his needs and the needs of his family. The American asked, well, what do you do with the rest of your time? Fisherman said, well, I sleep late. I fish a little, play with my children, take a siesta. In the evenings, I go into the village to see my friends, have a nice meal, play the guitar, sing a few songs. I have a full life. The American interrupted, I have an MBA from Harvard and I can help you. He said, you should start by fishing longer every day. You can sell the extra fish you catch. With the extra revenue, you can build a bigger boat. And after that, asked the Mexican. Well, with the extra money the larger boat will bring, you can buy a second one and a third one until you have an entire fleet of trawlers. Instead of selling your fish to a, a middleman, uh, you can then negotiate directly with the processing plants, maybe even buy your own plant. You can then leave this little village, move to Mexico City, Los Angeles, even New York City. From there, you can direct your huge new enterprise. How long will that take, asked the Mexican. Oh, 20 to 25 years or so. And after that? Afterwards, well, my friend, that's when it gets really interesting, answered the American. When the business gets really big, you can start selling stocks and make millions. The Mexican said, millions, really? And after that? Well, after that, you'll be able to retire, live in a tiny village near a coast. <laughs> you can sleep late, play with your children, catch a few fish, take a siesta, have evenings with your friends, and sing songs. What a crazy rat race. 
And I believe that uh, whoever came up with that story, how true it is, but he would certainly agree with what Solomon tells us in this passage before us about that rat race of work. Let's take a look. We're going to begin with the 18th verse of chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes. The teacher says, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he'll be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his, his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give uh, to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and striving after wind. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. Lord, will you in these few moments we have in your word, will you teach us a perspective? You gave Solomon all kinds of experiences. And many of those he just found to be empty. And yet, you don't leave us there. And so, Lord, will you lead us again to the words of truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I want you to begin with me in this passage. And we're, we're kind of picking up. Each week, I have to kind of artificially draw a line where I'm going to end and, and begin the next week. And uh, we want to kind of back up one verse to the way it ended uh, last week in terms of the attitude of uh, the teacher. One of the things I love about Ecclesiastes is how very transparent the teacher is here. He doesn't pull any punches. He's not not trying to put on some kind of a, a, a super spiritual face and imply that, you know, look, I have all these big and wonderful things because God has blessed me somehow because of my faithfulness or anything like that. What we see is that 
he goes through all these experiences and acquires all these things and they become a frustration to him. He gets them and then he sees the emptiness in them. Look at what he says back in verse 17. He talks about a hatred toward life itself. Verse 17, so I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me and all is vanity and a striving after the wind. Now think back of those of you that have been here and if you weren't here the last few weeks to the things that he has worked his way through, the things he didn't find satisfaction in. First of all, in terms of wisdom and intellectual pursuits, laughter, pleasure, wine, women, music, those things bored him ultimately. Personal projects, treasure, jewels, wealth. He compared wisdom and folly, and now he comes to work. And instead of meaning and fulfillment and happiness and satisfaction, his reaction is, I am hating life. You know, a lot of these things are things that, that people in our world are constantly pursuing. And he got them. And his conclusion is, I got them, and it was like sand in my hand. It was like a, a, a dust storm where it, I got there and it was all gone. And he's frustrated by it. This, this is an explosive statement. I mean, in, in one realm, think, what would it take for someone like uh, Bono or Andrea Bocelli great musicians, or even the musicians in our church. What would it take for them to say, I hate music? It's hard to even imagine. And yet that's what he's saying. He's saying he he has gone so far in that direction that he is hating his life. Now, look at, look at what else he says in verse 18. He goes on and says, uh, talks about a hatred for the things that he had attained. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who'll come after me. He hated his life in general, but he hated the, the things that he had uh, attained, the things that he had built became a reminder of of his emptiness every time he would see, you know, the great buildings that he had built. It would be just a reminder that, yeah, I did that, and it just brought more emptiness to me. The object of his devotion became the object of his hatred. And look what it led him to, verse 20, a real despair and hopelessness. So I turned about, gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Now that word despair is the same word that is used over in Job when Job had lost everything. 
this wealthy man with a, with a great family and with health, had lost all of those things. And this word, the same Hebrew word is used of him. And then he experienced as well a, a grief. Look at verse 23. For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Now, grief in and of itself can just drain a person. It can drain you emotionally. It can drain you physically. And that's what he's saying he was feeling. He had moved through despair to just a, a sorrow just in the life that he was living in. There was no relief even at night like there should be. Here's the picture that Solomon's painting. He's accomplished all these things we talked about last week and the week before. He worked hard to do it, and he found emptiness. And not only that, there was no break from it. He couldn't leave at the end of the day and go home and get some relief and relax and that kind of thing and and take his mind off of all of it. But instead, he'd go to bed. Have you ever had one of those nights where you go to bed and your mind is just racing? And you can't get it to stop. You're worrying or you're thinking or you're reliving something that you went through that day or that week or something that you're going to face tomorrow and you're lying there and your eyes are wide open and you can't make yourself sleep and then an hour before you're supposed to get up or something like that, precious sleep comes, then the alarm goes off and you have to get up and you feel like you didn't even sleep because virtually didn't. You're exhausted. That's what he's talking about here. That's what he's going through. Now, what was the process that got him to that point? I know this is very depressing, isn't it? But God, I'm convinced, is sharing this so that we don't fall into the same trap. (coughs) What what got him to that point? How did he get to such despair? Um, This downward spiral to vanity or meaninglessness. Look at verse 18. Uh, the, the work is it's frustrating because we leave the benefits behind. That frustrated him. Look what he says, verse 18. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he'll be wise or a fool. Yet he'll, he, um, he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. Now, back in uh, verse 16, Solomon had said this, and this is part of what got him to this point. For the wise, uh, for of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will be, uh, will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies like the fool. What's happening is he's coping with his own mortality. 
He's saying, look, I, I, you know, I'm doing all this work. I'm achieving all these things. But I'm, I'm going to die one of these days. And then somebody else is going to get it, whatever I achieve. And we don't even know if they're going to be wise or be a fool. Saying, it's meaningless. Now let me ask you this. Have you known, have you known of someone who has spent their whole life working, maybe spent their whole working life planning for retirement, saving, making big plans, looking forward to maybe travel, maybe building a vacation home, maybe something like that. And they go through their whole working life and they, and they get to the point and either right before they retire or shortly after they die. Happens. Solomon is saying, that's the frustration of this. Look, I've been working for all this, but what's the meaning of it? And then he goes on uh, uh, talking about this next generation, concerned about them. Verse 19 Who knows whether he'll be wise or a fool? Yet he'll be master for all which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. He's saying basically, look, you know, I, I achieve all this and I'm not sure I can trust the next generation with what I've put together. What are they going to do with it? He had good reason to be concerned about that. Solomon had a son, Rehoboam. Now, under Solomon's reign, there were decades of peace. Solomon handed the kingdom over to his son, who had a choice. The son's choice was, should I listen to wise, godly counselors, those who have a heart for God, or listen to, he wouldn't have described them this way, but this was the other side of the choice, Listen to these over here, my young friends, these upstarts who are selfish and godless. He chose them. He chose the ungodly to listen to. Within a brief span of time, barely a year, the country was in civil war. Egypt came marching through. Rehoboam went to the temple, Solomon's temple, and took gold from, from it and handed it over to them to try to get them not to invade. How sad to see all that which one has worked for destroyed by the next foolish generation. And there's one final frustration that he talks about. And that is that they don't deserve it. Verse 21, even if you, you trust them, they don't deserve it. 
Because it says in verse 21, sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. So what's the point? How are we to handle all this frustration? Okay, we'll be back next week and we will, I would not do that to you. Each week what we have done is we have looked at his observations and then we have, which is living under the sun. It's how we live here on this earth and the kinds of frustrations that people face. And then we have backed up and looked at the view from above the sun. What is God's view of all of this? Is work useless? Is there even a right perspective on work? And as we've seen each week, yes, God has not left us in this depressing, horrible place to be. Let me give you some of the above the sun perspective. You know, far too many people have their identity wrapped up in their job, in their work. This is especially true for men, but it is true for women, can be true for women as well. In other words, their their self-worth, who they are, is not who they are, but it becomes what they do. That's my identity. So what happens if you are underemployed or become unemployed if your identity is wrapped up in what you do, in your work. Well, what happens is you can get to where Solomon is, and that is you can say, so what's the use? I've lost, I've lost who I am. And it can be difficult, and we have... Millions in our country right now that are dealing with that. And a lot of them are struggling financially, but just as big a struggle is that struggle of feeling like they have lost themselves. Our identity, if we are believers, must never be in what we do. It's in who we are. Who are we? We are children of the living God. And nothing can take that away if we are in Christ and we are a child of the living God. And so, we may be a child of the living God with a job or without a job, but in either case, when that's our identity, We will not lose it by the circumstances of the world that we live in. In terms of the above the sun meaning of work, the institution of work is a creation ordinance. It goes all the way back to Genesis. We see that God gave man the the mandate to work, to take care of things, to toil, and so on. And that wasn't after sin came into the world. He didn't say, okay, you all have sinned. Now 
okay, from now on, I'm going to make you have jobs, <laughs> you know. That's not how it was. He gave them the mandate, and their work was beautiful. It was fulfilling until sin came into the world. And then everything was cursed, everything in this world, and even work was going to be hard because in this world now there would be thorns and thistles and, and it, you would uh, break the ground up by the sweat of your brow. It's going to be hard. And that's where we see work continuing on and yet there's still being a purpose for it. Now, back in the Reformation, we were given a wonderful gift by the Reformers. The medieval church before that had kind of a, a, a triumphal approach to society. The church wanted to dominate and make all things Christian. And so they tried to do that. They would declare, this country is Christian. Everybody in it is Christians. And try to, try to do that. And then there was the other side, a different kind of radical reformation that tried to escape from the world and said, no, we can't have jobs in the world or whatever. We are going to come out here and become monks or go to a monastery and get away from the world and not be tainted by it. Neither one of those was a right perspective or the above the sun perspective. And then came the Reformation. And you have those like Luther giving us the doctrine of vocation where he refused to make a distinction between secular and sacred. He said everything, if you are in Christ, is sacred. There is not a Sunday-Monday divide. You know where... Some would say, well, I do my sacred things on Sunday, and then there's the rest of the week. And Luther and the Reformers said, no, that's not it. So their view was to be a priest, we are all called to be priests, and not just priests within a church, but we are priests in whatever God calls us to do. And if he calls you to be a shoemaker, you follow that calling and you bring glory to God in that calling, in that vocation. That's the above the sun. I think, I think they had it right. They were closer to the scripture in that. And then we must also, in terms of work, not forget the Sabbath the Lord's Day. You know, as work weeks have gotten shorter and as people are always trying to figure out ways to work less and make the same amount of money and so on, certainly in other countries, some of them are trying to achieve that. And for some, the work week has, you know, gotten to a, a five-day or let's get it all into four days and so on. 
then the whole idea of one day and six kind of loses some of its meaning. But when God instituted the, the Sabbath, the Lord's Day, he said, look, uh, your calling is to, to labor for these six days. But then there's one day. And I want you not to be laboring that day. On that day, be recreated, be rejuvenated, be spiritually charged to enable you to fulfill your vocation and to bring glory to God, not just on that one day, but on all of the other days as well. Listen to what the scripture says in Isaiah 58. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways, or seeking your own pleasure, or talking idly, then, here, here's the then, the application, if, in other words, if you honor the Sabbath, if you, if you take that one day, and do the things of the Lord, seek Him that day, then, he says, you shall take delight in the Lord and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. Recovery, refocus, rejuvenation, being revived on the Lord's day. And then the, we see an above the sun perspective right here in Ecclesiastes. This is a rare mid-journal glimpse that Solomon gives to us of the right perspective of what's going to be the conclusion of the book. Look what he says in this moment of enlightenment in verse 24 and 25. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. You see, he's talking about all these frustrating things, and then he says, you know what? He'd already talked about eating and drinking and so on. He said, look, we actually, we, we should get enjoyment in these things. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Solomon gives a glimpse uh, of the ultimate conclusion that we are going to see in the book of Ecclesiastes. And that glimpse is that the answer is it's about a relationship with God. If there is to be enjoyment in this life and fulfillment in this life, it's not going to be in pursuing these things out here, but in pursuing the creator of those things. And it's only in that relationship with the creator through his son, Jesus Christ, that we will have a right perspective on the rat race, a perspective that will free us from it and give us enjoyment and fulfillment as we live and work in this fallen world, but we have a fulfillment as we are identified as children of the living God in Jesus Christ. Let's bow together.